Hey everyone, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. I'm your host, Rick Alexander. I host all of these podcasts on this channel. If you are getting anything out of this show, it would mean the world to me if you would head to iTunes and give us a five-star review or just share the show with somebody that you think the message might resonate with. A couple of housekeeping items before I get into the show today. I have a couple of spots open for one-on-one coaching and spiritual guidance. Uh, And the reason I've started using the term spiritual guidance is because if you are interested in some of the ideas that I'm exploring on this show, I've tried to live them to the best of my ability. And I've had coaches that have and guides that have helped me learn to embrace this aspect of myself, which quite honestly, for most of my life, I was cut off from. I didn't have access to my own depth. And so any of the things that I share on here are things I'm interested in, things I've wrestled with in my past, and things that I've integrated into my own growth and healing journey. And I see those two things as kind of linked, because I think if we grow without healing, we end up disconnected, right? We end up disconnected from ourselves and from our soul and from our you know, what's essential about us, which I say on here all the time. So anyway, I have a couple of spots open for that. I will link that up in the show notes of this episode. Additionally, today I'm going, especially toward the end of this podcast, talk a little bit about masculine and feminine dynamics and how each of us have this contrasexual energy, what Jung, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst, understood as the anima for men, that's the soul, and animus for women. So both of those words are Latin for soul, and it's the masculine, feminine, dominant. And so the idea being that every person, regardless of gender identity, has a mixture of both masculine and feminine energy within them. And if you you don't have a relationship to that other aspect of yourself, then again, you feel disconnected and cut off and don't have, you don't feel whole because you're not whole, because by definition, you're not whole. Um, And the reason I say that is because Danielle and I have a new book club launching in November. You can pay whatever you want to join these book clubs. And the way that it works is we have the book. We, you know, we will say, let's read this certain section. And then Danielle and I will put a podcast together using our lenses. Mine tend to be more philosophical, theological, and hers tend to be more, I would say, depth psychology and somatic experience, like what's happening in the body here. And we take our two lenses and we just have a conversation about the book and we send that out to everybody in the club and then we all meet on, I think, the second Sunday of the month, something like that for this club and have a conversation. And these conversations end up to be really rich dialogue about what it is that the book is actually about. And so this this time for this book club, we're reviewing Robert Johnson has two books. They're very, very short. They're called He and She. And they're talking about masculine and feminine psychology. And in them, because he takes a Jungian approach to masculine and feminine psychology, he was a Jungian analyst, we'll talk a little bit about how to integrate those uh, contrasexual energies. So interesting that that book club is coming up and then this podcast is going to have a bit in it about about that part of being human, about learning to relate to what we are not or what we are but have convinced ourselves that we're not might be a good way to put it. Anyway, if you're interested in learning about masculine and feminine psychology through reading these books and having these discussions, I will also put the link to sign up for our next book club in here uh, on the show notes of this episode. And then the third link that I'm going to put in there 
is the sign up for my upcoming lecture series, which is going to launch uh, sometime in the fall, probably in November sometime. And if you're interested in being notified, everybody on this list will get 10% off when I launch it. But basically, I'm putting a lecture series together with five or six lectures where I'm going to help healers, guides, people that are interested in transformational work, maybe their own or maybe guiding other people in the actual spiritual and psychological process of transformation. What is it that's actually transforming in us? That's going to be the subject of that lecture. So if you're interested in that as well, I will put the sign up in the show notes of this episode. All right, so let's get into talking today about Taoism. There, there are many different sort of schools of Taoism, just like every kind of wisdom path or religious path. Taoism gets pulled into the religious traditions, kind of thought of as a religious tradition. Again, I really think that's a mistake, and I'll talk about some of the reasons why I think that is. But I'm going to begin with a verse, uh, number 54, from the Tao Te Ching. And, you know, in the show notes of this episode, actually, I'll link a version of the Tao Te Ching, my favorite translation of it. If you're interested in using this in your own work or just interested in exploring it, reading it, contemplating what it is that the uh, Tao Te Ching is putting forth. Again, it's a different approach completely from the way that we think about religion in the West. And so that has to be understood. The Tao Te Ching was thought to be written by... Uh, philosopher Lao Tzu who lived in the 4th, 5th century BC. But kind of like every other wisdom tradition, the founder, the person that that it's all centered around is kind of, uh, kind of gets lost in antiquity. There's sort of a quest to find the real Lao Tzu, whether it was really a person named Lao Tzu that wrote all of these or whether it was a collected wisdom. And you see this all over the place, right? Like if you read Greek mythology and you check the Homeric hymns out or the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? We don't know if Homer was an actual person. It's called the Homeric question. So scholars are there's, there's tons of debates between scholars about whether Homer was a real person or whether it was a collection, an oral tradition, which is how almost all of these ancient wisdoms start as an oral tradition that gets passed along. You see the same thing in the Bible when you look at like the wisdom traditions in the Bible and, and what like Solomon was uh, credited with writing, like Solomon's credited with writing the Proverbs, and Solomon is credited with writing Ecclesiastes in these books in the Old Testament, but actually scholars are pretty divided on it. We're not 100% sure um, whether you know this person sat down and wrote this or if it just came, I think most likely it seems like it just came from the wisdom tradition and the, the Solomon school of, of wisdom. So I say all of that to say that this is much like that. The Tao Te Ching is a book that we have that has been passed down over generations. And rather than a value hierarchy, rather than a value system, right? When we talk about God, we, we're really talking about a, a transcendent value, something of ultimate importance, right? At least from at least from a value perspective. But Taoism isn't concerned with whether or not like God exists or how to act in relation to God or anything like that. Taoism rather is non-theistic, kind of like Buddhism is. So that's the deal with Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. So I'm going to start this off with reading verse 54 of the Tao Te Ching, and then we'll get into the episode and talking about it. But 54 says this, whoever is planted in the Tao will not be rooted up. Whoever embraces the Tao will not slip away. Her name will be held in honor from generation to generation. Let the Tao be present in your life and you will become genuine. 
Let it be present in your family, and your family will flourish. Let it be present in your country, and your country will be an example to all countries in the world. Let it be present in the universe, and the universe will sing. How do I know this is true? By looking inside myself. So what is it that we're planted in when we are planted in the Tao? Well, the Tao can be translated roughly as the way or the path. As I said, it gets classified at times with religion, but again, I think this is a mistake because it's a wisdom path and it's an observation into the natural way of things so that we can enter into that harmony, right? So the idea is, and this is the idea with most wisdom paths, right? They teach you how to see. They teach you to see the world in a different way. And then as you see how the world unfolds, you have an opportunity of entering into that flow, the Tao has been translated as God in the past by some Christian missionaries, but I don't, I don't think that's a good translation. And also, I think that when you find yourself in the Tao, you're likely to bump into God, right? When you find yourself in harmony with all, that's, all that is and all that has ever been, then you're, you're likely to bump into God, especially if you have language for that, right? Especially if God is something that you serve or pray to or think about or believe in, then I think when you enter into this harmony, you're going to find yourself bumping into the phenomena that you use the word God for. But the Tao is something like the natural way that things unfold or the natural flow and order of the universe, which is independent of any sort of value system, right? And so when we use the word God, we're talking about as I said, a transcendent value, something of ultimate importance or ultimate value. This Taoism is about seeing the world differently. It's actually about seeing what's happening and then trying to look beyond that and seeing the animating force behind what's happening because that's what you need to know because that's what you enter into. You enter into the flow, the energy, the dynamic energy that is behind the phenomena itself. And I will say that if you study wisdom traditions, especially like Taoism, you know, when you look out in the world and see what's happening today in the sort of chaos that's always presenting itself, it helps you see it in a little bit of a different light. It helps you not get so wrapped up in the symptoms. You can kind of see through them and see, well, maybe what else is going on here? You know, it's like I see what's happening, but, but what else is happening? Why is that presenting itself? Because that whatever it is that you see is the end of a current of energy that is manifesting itself for very specific reasons. In the West, we love to label things with value so that we can understand them, right? So i.e. good versus bad. But the Tao, the reason I talk about separating yourself from values is because the Tao is something like the current underlying the natural way of things in nature is independent of any sort of value system. Right? So what maims and kills and, and mutilates the gazelle thoroughly nourishes the lion. Right? So you might see the gazelle get killed and think, well, that's terrible. And it's like, well, not if you're the lion, do you see? So your value is contextual. Because we're meaning-making creatures, our brains come up with a narrative of what happens in the world based on our unique preferences but we must understand that our narratives aren't correct in an ultimate way. They're correct in a contextual way. And that context is based on our value system. So the reason I point this out is because sometimes we get trapped in our opinions. And that keeps us from being able to enter into the Tao, into the natural way of things, into harmony. Here's an example. 
Right? I often have a narrative that things have to be difficult, right? That I have to work and to sacrifice. And so if something comes with ease, then I'm likely to reject it and take the road with more suffering, right? Just this is going to be an unconditioned or a unconscious process that I embark on without even knowing it. It's like my natural preferences are selecting the path that I take in the world. You see people that are pulling the emergency button, that create emergencies for themselves because they are better off thriving in chaos, right? All of this is interrelated. The idea with Taoism, though, is that you put all of that down for a minute. And often this happens outside of my awareness. Like my preference for suffering means that I won't even consider the fact that life might be easier than what I'm seeing right now. And when we, again, the reason we have to put our value judgments down is because we might end up, we are not able to see things as they are. We get caught in our contextual framework for seeing them. That's why we are, you know, you see people that are really caught in their contextual framework. They go around and they expect other people, they expect themselves out of other people. It's like, well, they're not treating me right. They should treat me. And then they'll go on and say something like how I would treat them. So they're putting themselves in a position where they can't see what's real. They can't see the natural way of things because they're so clung to their preferences in the world because they're expecting themselves out of everybody else. And I talk about this all the time, but expectation gives the world, gives the universe about a billion ways to let you down and only one way to satisfy you. And the universe never agreed to your conditions. So with your expectations, you're also putting life in a situation where it's going to let you down over and over and over. And Taoism is about forgetting all of that, forgetting all of your expectations and being right where your feet are. And so, you know, there's something that happens in enlightenment practices, satori experiences, something like that, right? The, in the Zen Buddhist tradition, for example, they'll say something like, you're always enlightened. You just don't know it. You're already there. You've, you've already made it home, but you don't know it yet. And the reason they'll say that is because when you have an experience of awakening, you firmly plant yourself in the joy of what is. So you have no expectations for what should be. So there's nothing to let you down. You're completely content with what is. And you're in this place now. You might just not know it. You might just have a lot of preconceived ideas and notions and expectations of what should be happening. And you're basing what should be happening now off what's happened in the past, for example. And so life isn't presenting to you as new. But landing in the Tao is something like a shortcut to the awakening experience. Because when you land here for real, I don't know if shortcut's the right word, but but a path anyway. Because when you land in what's real and you have no expectations for what should be, life presents to you as completely brand new at every single moment. And when it's exciting when you're in that place and you're in the flow of everything that is happening because you're not fighting it. There's no friction to be found. But the Tao you see is the natural emergence from within from within you. So when you're in the Tao or moving symbiotically with it, you experience far less friction and you experience flow. And flow is something like the optimal way of being in our world. It gives you enough friction to be immersed in continual insight. So let me talk about what I mean by that because Taoism is often talked about as the philosophy of flow. And one of the reasons that we don't enter into this, as I said, and I'll get into this a little bit further as I move on here, but one of the reasons that we don't allow ourselves to um, 
to enter what is into reality as such is because of all of our expectations for what it should be. And if we expect that we have to suffer in order to get where we want, then we're not going to take the path of flow and ease. Because when you're in flow, you're getting continual insight. This is something that John Verveke points out in his episodes, uh, his lecture series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which I could not recommend strongly enough. It's just incredible. 30 lectures on YouTube um, if you're interested in how it is that humans' meaning-making functions have evolved through time. But he describes flow as something like continual insight. And I think that's true. It's like when you're in flow, if you've ever entered flow when you're writing, for example, it's like the insights are just coming at the speed in which you are writing. And so you're that's how you can write. Like sometimes I'll write a whole chapter and I'll look back and realize that I didn't know any of that before I started writing it. But it's because I entered that place of flow that the insights continue to come And as I continued to follow them, I ended up in a completely new place. And that's what flow offers us, right? It's like a way that we map out the unknown territory of the universe. And the unknown, obviously, is so much more than the known because you're such a finite creature. And I've talked about this on here, so I won't get super into it. But you're such a finite creature that you're... Your awareness of what's in the world is such, it's nothing. It's a sliver. It's a thumbnail of what's actually real. And so what humans do, how we evolve our consciousness is we continue to map out what we don't know. And when we do that, we then enter into the unknown, we map it out, and then it becomes known. We integrate it into our map of the world, into our known territory. And so the way that flow happens is when we're rooted in the known and simultaneously exploring the unknown. And so this is why, for example, you won't get into flow if you suck at something. Like if you've never done yoga or if you've never surfed, you won't get into flow. But people that do yoga all the time and surf all the time can get into flow quite easily because they don't have to think about it, right? They've made the thing itself autonomic to themselves. They can just do it without thinking about it. And when you're in that place, then you're entering into the unknown without having to think about where you are. So there has to be a level of skill involved in what you're doing. If you think you suck at writing, for example, you won't get into flow. Um, If you just let yourself write, you'll probably get into flow because I think everybody with a even somewhat of an education can just let themselves write. The problem is that they don't. But in any case, when we are talking about Taoism, we're trying to we're trying to discern the flow that things happen, right? The the way in which things in our universe seem to flow, and then we enter into that flow, and so we get a sense of ease. And so I want to talk about why it is that most of us in the West prefer to swim upstream and to be in conflict with the natural way of things, right? And there's many reasons about this. I've got four that I want to talk about today. The first is that many of us, this is what I was talking about earlier, have grown so accustomed to suffering that we feel as though if we're not suffering, we don't actually exist. And that's a question to ask yourself. Do I feel like I have to suffer in order for this to mean something to me, in order for me to feel like this is tangible in some way? Because so many of us are caught up breaking glass when there's actually no emergency. The problem is ease feels unsafe to us. Now, often this is traumatically informed, right? Often we undergo these traumas at very young ages. Not that you had to go through a big T trauma, 
right? But that life itself is inherently traumatizing. It's inherently overwhelming. There are times where you had to develop certain mechanisms to help you survive the world, a very brutal world. So you have all these protectors that come forward. And so your job then is to get through these protectors, right? And because you'll never let yourself have a sense of ease. And often the way that you do that is in relationship to other people, because that's typically where these traumatic fissures, let's say, tend to occur. They tend to occur very early on with our original caretakers, our first caretakers, because it's a it's a kind of a full-time job mirroring another person. We mirror people when they're born so that they know that they're real, right? They have to feel that who I am is real. And if the only time they're mirrored is when they're in trouble or when they're crying or something like that, right? If the parent is somewhat unavailable because maybe they're depressed about something or their life is changing because they just had a kid, right? There's a million reasons. They're all independent of value. We can make value statements about good or bad, but that's Besides the point, the point is that this happens to an overwhelming majority of the population. And so if we want to allow ourselves to feel worthy of what it is we want, to actually live our lives with some sense of ease, then we have to undo a lot of that early conditioning and that happens in relationship. And that's one of the reasons that I'm such a proponent of coaching or therapy or something along those lines, right? Like what I'm doing with my clients, for example, is I'm creating a container that's allowing them to help remap out their coping mechanisms, to remap the way that they are in the world so that they can put all these protectors down so that they can enter into their life as it is. So that's the first reason. I think a lot of people in the West are just accustomed to suffering, right? And we have it built into our stories, into our ideas. And so we're like, well, to be something, you have to suffer. You have to sacrifice. And I think that's true. But I think we have to have a real conversation about what it is that we sacrifice and what it is that we're suffering for. Because a lot of people are suffering for no reason at all. No reason that's moving them forward to a place that they really want to be. Number two, modernity has convinced us that we can avoid the natural rhythms of the world and of the seasons. So if we're going to enter into flow, then we have to know how that flow happens. And everything in nature has seasons. And so we, as a part of nature, this remember the Tao emerges from within us. That's why at the end of that verse he says, how do I know this is true? Well, by looking inside of myself. And so you are nature. Nature is you. And you're not, you can't be independent of its rhythms because you're it. Except in modernity, we can be. For example, we can turn the heat or the air conditioner on in our house, right? We can, we don't have to sleep longer in the winter. We can just use fluorescent lights and screen, LCD screens and everything else. So we don't, we're not connected to the natural rhythm of things. Now, in the West, we have this idea where we really worship growth, right? This is the most important thing for everybody in our culture, essentially. It's like, be able, and this part of this is true because consumerism is really our, our main religion here in the West. And so if you're not growing, how can you consume? So you can't contribute to the religion. And so you'll notice, like, if you watch the media or something, if there's ever a down quarter, it's like, oh man, the sky's starting to fall. And it's like, well, Maybe you just need to have a down quarter. And this is one of the things that we have to undo in our growth journey, I think, because oftentimes we need what's behind us. So we have to go back and we have to heal what's behind us before we can grow, before we can move forward. And I've said it on here before, but the only thing that grows at all costs is cancer, 
right? And what that does is grow at the cost of the host, the environment that actually makes it possible. And that's what we're doing to the earth right now, right? We're worshiping growth. And so we're trying to move forward at all costs. And because of that, um, we're not paying heed to the natural rhythms of this life. But like if you go in the gym, for example, you know that you can't just lift and lift and lift and lift and think you're going to get stronger. You have to stop. Right? And that's when you're going to get stronger, when you stop. And same thing, like if you're doing growth work and you're up against this really intense psychic material, often you need a break from it. And the break will help you integrate some of those older things. But a lot of us don't enter into the flow because we fight it because we don't think we have to, because we think we can grow at all costs, because we often think we can manipulate reality to give us what we want and that we don't have to be beholden to anything else like our nature. And when that happens... We're in conflict with it because it doesn't go away because we are it. And so what happens is we just end up in conflict with our own nature. Number three, and remember, these are the reasons that we prefer to swim upstream. The ego has not been displaced and as such, we do not surrender because if you're going to enter ease and flow, you've got to let go, right? This is why a lot of the traditions of the East are about letting go of what you're holding onto. And this thing about the ego not wanting to be displaced, not wanting to die to itself, is one of the reasons I think that we have morphed religions in the West. For example, Ken Wilber talks about Christianity as a religion of descent, right? Not a religion of ascent. You're not going up, right? If you really start to follow Christ, then you're you're taking the path, right? You're picking up the cross. You're going to suffer immensely because you're going to have to die to the world. All of your egoic desires, the whole false self is going to have to die. And that's going to be a painful and at, one, at some point liberating process. But it is a religion of descent, not ascend. But then we don't want the ego to be displaced, to be displaced in the West, right? We don't want the ego to be dethroned, for example, and so this is, I think, one of the major contributions that the psychoanalyst gave us, right? Because one of the things like Freud, for example, right? One of the things that Freud did is all these people in Florence would come in and they, these high society members that have really convinced themselves that their ego is everything and that they can, they can control reality and that they're at the top of the mountain. And then he would say something, which I think... Some of these theories are good and some aren't as good now because he was in a very sexually repressed culture. But he'd be like something like, well, you're just in love with your mom, actually, and you're, fi you're failing to launch because of that. You know, he would basically take these egos who had fortified themselves and convinced themselves that, that they were it and he would dethrone them. And I think that that's one of the things, again, that the psychoanalyst gave us, that, that religion first gave us but that we had walked away from in modernity and that psychoanalytics tried to give us again is to like realize, no, you actually have to surrender that. You can't manipulate reality to give it what you want with your egoic desires and your false self. And what's interesting is then you see things pop up like the prosperity gospel, right? It's like this, this religion of dissent then becomes, no, no, just pray for what you want, right? Just Ask for what you want and then you'll get it. So the ego doesn't have to go anywhere. Actually, it gets to fortify itself. Actually, it gets to get stronger. And so then 
what happens is you end up with stuff like the prosperity gospel where you've got these preachers flying around in helicopters and driving Ferraris because, you know, that's what God wants them to have. Somehow this language of dissent became a way to fortify the ego. And they have huge numbers, right? They're huge. Like you look at like Joel Osteen, for example, you know, he's in like a basketball coliseum filled with tens of thousands of people all hoping that somehow they get to make it out of here alive, that they get to make it out with their ego, that they don't have to sacrifice anything. And it's a very salient and popular message for that reason, because we don't like the ego to be dethroned in the West. The thing is, once the ego is dethroned, then you get liberation, right? That's moksha, that's that's satori, that's where that happens. It's not going to happen through the ego. But anyway... Just something to think about. Number four, it's paradoxical, right? Which means you have to sit with it for a long time. It doesn't fit our fast food culture and our shrinking attention span. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm going to read uh, verse 45 here if I can find it. Yep. So true perfection seems imperfect, yet it is perfectly itself. True fullness seems empty, yet it's fully present. True straightness seems crooked, True wisdom seems foolish. True art seems artless. The master allows things to happen. She shapes events as they come. She steps out of the way and lets the Tao speak for itself. Right? So the only way you're going to understand paradox is when you surrender the ego. Right? And like Carl Jung, for example, said one of the reasons that most people don't continue to progress in their healing and growth journeys is because they run into a paradox that they simply cannot accept. And if you read that, it seems nonsensical. And that's precisely the point, right? It's kind of like the idea with a parable or a Zen koan, right? It's trying to scramble your perceptual lens because what you think isn't right, right? What you think is only right at one egoic level of reality. But if you want to get closer to what's real, to the absolute, then you actually have to surrender that. And so you're going to have to move through those paradoxes. And those paradoxes are going to be resolved in yourself. But you have to sit with that for a long time, right? This is what this is why contemplation was first, um, I think, created, why the wisdom traditions rely on contemplative path or contemplative exercises so much. Because you're not going to get it just by reading it. You have to sit with it and then you have to let it read you and let it move things around in you and watch what happens when it does. That's the essence of contemplation. So I said before, in order to understand the Tao, we have to think energetically. And the way that we think energetically in our culture, as I said at the beginning, is with masculine and feminine energy. And this has to be understood, you know, for those of you that are new to my content, this is not to be confused with gender identification. When we talk about masculine and feminine energy, we're talking about the animating forces of the world and each gender has both. Much of our difficulties in this life, I find, occur because we do not have a good relationship with our own contrasexual energy. That's the anima and animus that I was talking about at the beginning. So I want to reference a few ways that the, this can happen, right? So let's talk about, I'll talk about men in this example, just because I coach so many men and I have, I've developed talks and stuff for men. So I'm just going to use this example, but we can use it in any way that you want, because you'll notice, oh yeah, I've been also taught something similar. So 
the way that most men are conditioned often involves a lot of shaming of anything that may appear weak, vulnerable, or emotional, right? This is the eros principle. You could think instead of masculine and feminine, if you want eros and logos, might be another way of dividing the energies up and trying to understand how they interact. But anyway, such shaming is one of powerful, is one powerful source that fuels the gender split in the psyche. In other words, as men, these aspects of ourselves that are not supported and allowed to flourish go underground and energize the anima or animus for women who have the other conditioning, right? And so if you are raised as a man and you realize that you're not allowed to show weakness and that that makes you less than for some reason, you start to get this psychic fracture and you get cut away from your, and this, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about this in our upcoming book club because Robert Johnson talks a lot about this in his books. But essentially what happens is you get you get fractured away from that energy and it doesn't go away because it's you, right? You're not going to conquer yourself in that way. You're going to conquer yourself when you actually go meet yourself where you are, when you come home to yourself and integrate all that you actually are. It's not going to happen by repression. But what happens, because we have this contrasexual energy and we're not allowed to express it, is that a, a psychic fracture occurs and we no longer have access to it. And so the anima and eros, which is unconscious for traditionally conditioned men, often includes important elements of relationship which remain underdeveloped. So it's like part of himself gets left behind and stops developing, interfering with his full functioning. For example, without strong connection to his emotions and vulnerability, a man's capacity for getting his deeper emotional needs met and his capacity for empathy are lacking. This not only leaves him unable to respond on a deep level to his intimate partners, but leaves his deepest wants and desires unfulfilled. So when I start to get into the characteristics of masculine and feminine energy, you'll see what I mean. But for example, the ability to nurture is a feminine energetic trait. And if a man doesn't have the ability to nurture himself, right, or a woman for that matter, doesn't have the ability to nurture themselves, they haven't integrated that aspect of their personality, they're going to look out in the world to try to get their needs met. And so the way that they're going to center themselves typically comes with compulsion, compulsively masturbating, compulsively smoking, compulsively eating, something like that. Because every time you do it, it feels like it's centering yourself and it only lasts for a very short period of time. So you go back to the well over and over and over. So let's talk about some of the ways to understand these energies. So when we talk about masculine energy, we're talking about the up and out energy, right? It's action oriented. When we talk about feminine, we're talking about down and in, intuitive, empathetic. It's being able to recognize the needs that you have and then meet those needs. Another masculine trait is strong and stable, sort of self-confident. And you know, you'll see that uh, for example, again, a man, just I hate to keep using this example, they're just coming to me because it's what I am. But a man, for example, that doesn't have a relationship with his own feminine isn't going to be self-confident. They're not going to be strong and stable. They can appear it, right? They can repress for a very long time. But actually something else is going to be going on. Something's going to be gnawing at them from the inside out. 
Because the feminine dynamic is containing. Think about the womb. It doesn't need to fix. It needs to be with. And when you have emotions, whether you're a man or a woman, your emotions need you to be with them. They need to be felt so that they can be moved through you, right? Emotion is energy in motion. And so you actually have to allow it to move through you. When you repress it, it keeps it stifled inside. And that's why you're not strong, stable, and self-confident when you don't have a relationship to the energy that needs to be in motion through you. And so, again, you can think about the containing function of the feminine as something like the womb. And you know, something very interesting is that really early cultures, like pre, you know, pre-Bronze Age, for example, we were finding evidence of a lot of goddess worship. And I think I could make some ideas about the consciousness level of the time and why that why that seems to be true. But something that's very interesting is, you know, this is where the idea of the tomb actually came from. It's because we go, we put ourselves back into the womb, into Mother Gaia in order to be reborn. And so the tomb, the womb to tomb idea, right? This is the idea behind the tomb is that we go back into the womb in order to be reborn. Just something I think is very interesting. Let's see, the masculine feminine or the masculine energy is decisive, right? Knows what it wants and goes after it. It's purpose driven. So we're thinking about discernment. This is why the sword is often talked about, like in the New Testament, for example, they'll talk about the sword as being a symbol of the logos, right? The logos or logos, however you want to say it, because that's the discriminating energy. That's the word that discriminates, right? It cuts apart and divides. That's masculine. The feminine is creative and inspiring, right? It's creative. It's creating life, quite quite literally. So with masculine energy, again, I said, as the words are going to be more prioritized than the feeling. And so a person that doesn't have access to their feeling functions and to their internal feminine will say, I think a lot. I think this. I think this. And it's like, well, you're, you're thinking this. And I'm saying this because it's me, <laughs> but you're, you think this because you can't feel what's real. But what do you feel? Those are different things. And if you only go off what you think, you might never actually be able to be with and meet the feeling. And so it might stay stuck. Right? It might never actually move through you. There's a couple other things. Masculine energy loves to be acknowledged for achievement, where feminine energy loves to be admired and appreciated. And here's a, a good thing to understand about this too, this idea of like, one is purpose-driven and decisive, and the other one is more nurturing, wants to be with, doesn't need to fix anything, right? And oftentimes our problems, they're just problems because we're humans. They don't need to be fixed, right? If you have an emotional issue that's happening, maybe there's something you can do about it, but maybe you just need to let the energy move through you and you need to cry it out so you can you can just get on with it, you know? I mean, quite honestly, so that you can just release it and let it go. So you don't have to carry this around. Because what happens is if you can never be with it, if you're always trying to fix it, then that energy never moves through you. It ends up feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your back, right? Because you are, you're carrying it with you. But when you release it, you start to feel this, this sense of freedom. You're moving closer to the Tao in that place. Because what you are is free. You just don't know it. Another way to think of these energies, which has become really popular as of late, is with, like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about chaos and order. And so order is the masculine principle and chaos is the feminine. And I don't love to talk about chaos and order because in some sense, I think we don't understand all that those energies 
imply. Like most of us, for example, think about chaos and we think about something negative. But chaos, there's a there's redemption in chaos. Chaos is everything. It's the potential to be everything. And so the redemptive element of chaos is the fact that it's what gives birth to new life. But it doesn't do that without order, right? And so it's the meeting of the two that creates new life. And I think it's interesting when you think about the religions of the West, right? Because we we know we're made of earth, right? Our bodies are made of mother Gaia. And at the same time, we pray to the father. And so it's the meeting of the spirit and the matter. It's the meeting of the masculine and the feminine, the chaos and the order that extracts new life out of it. And that's what we are, right? And so if you want to be in the optimal functioning for what you are, then you want to be in the place where those two things meet, you see? Imagine that these two energies as we kind of wind down here, are always whirling around and you're in the Tao when you're perfectly positioned between them. This is what the symbolism of the yin and the yang represent, right? The yin-yang. It's the, it's the masculine-feminine principles in harmony. So it shows us the way of the Tao. And you'll notice when you look at it that these two energies are not opposed to each other, right? We don't reach equilibrium when one wins over the other or when they are in a a stalemate, like an internal tug of war, which is what so often we feel. We're in this internal war. For example, in the West, right, often what happens is when we get in these internal tug, tug of wars where we're we like have all this resistance to doing what we think we should be doing or want to be doing, then our answer is often, well, let's just fucking do it. Just get it done. If I can just overcome this resistance, if I can just force it, it will happen. But if you pay attention to energy, you realize that all force creates a counterforce. So you can never escape it. You can never beat yourself by vanquishing yourself. You're not going anywhere. These energies are part of you. And so when we have that, a lot of us know that feeling of internal tug of war, and it's nothing like harmony. But we're in the Tao when these two energies are all moving symbiotically toward the same end, and that's how we become whole. We go find all of the pieces of ourselves that have been left, that have been left in the dark, that have been repressed, all of the emotions that have been repressed. We go collect them all and integrate them, and then all of us end up moving in the same direction. We're no longer fighting in a tug of war. We're all moving symbiotically to the same place, and that's wholeness, and that's liberation. So as I end here, I have a contemplative practice where what I do, whatever I'm going to use as my contemplative work, whether sometimes I use the Bible, sometimes I use the Tao Te Ching, sometimes I'll use some writing by Carl Jung or something. The idea with contemplation is not that you understand what you read. It's not that you use that information to grow in some way, right? That's our worshiping of growth that wants to do that. It's like, oh, just give me the info, give me the insight, give me the thing. And so there's like a layer of greed behind it. Like, oh, just give me that. And like Carl Jung said, you've got to be very careful of wisdom that you didn't earn. Well, the contemplative path is a completely different approach. What you do in contemplation is you read something, as I said, and then you just sit with it and you read it again. And then you sit with it. Maybe you read it out loud and you listen to yourself read it. Not that you try to understand it. You actually try not to understand anything. You try to empty yourself of all of your understanding. Empty yourself of all of your thoughts, all of your discriminations, all of your biases. And just listen to it. And allow it, pay attention as it moves through you, as it reads you.
And, you know, oftentimes when we're reading something and we feel a strong emotional reaction to something, we'll just keep reading. We'll just try to like push it away, right? That's the repression. It's like, well, no, something just happened with you. You're being told something very important by this text. It's reading you right now. So if you can stop and pay attention to that and have some time in contemplation, you might find that over time, new insight arrives. So often what I do is I'll take these books and I'll just flip open at a random page and I'll just contemplate whatever it is I find. So I'm going to end this podcast by opening the Tao Te Ching. And again, if you guys are interested in this, I will link it up in the show notes of this episode. Stephen Mitchell is my favorite translation. But in any case, let me flip this open and we'll just see, see what it has for us today. And that's how I'll end this show. In the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the practice of the Tao, every day, something is dropped. Less and less do you need to force things until finally you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. True mastery can be gained by letting things go their own way. It can't be gained by interfering. In harmony with the Tao, the sky is clear and spacious. The earth is solid and full. All creatures flourish together, content with the way they are, endlessly repeating themselves, endlessly renewed. When man interferes with the Tao, the sky becomes filthy, the earth becomes depleted, the equilibrium crumbles, creatures become extinct. The master views the parts with compassion because he understands the whole. His constant practice is humility. He doesn't glitter like a jewel, but lets himself be shaped by the Tao, as rugged and common as stone.